Okay, that's uh, welcome back to the Tom Dupree show. That is the Hollies from, gosh, probably 1965. And the uh, lead vocalist is a guy named Graham Nash, who uh, ended up in Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and later Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. But the Hollies were really a force to be reckoned with for a number of years uh, and partially for their tight harmonies like that. It sounds like he's playing a 12-string also, doesn't it? I think it is because it, when it's got that sound, I used to have a... That's a 12-string. Do they have electric 12-strings? They do. Yeah. They do. All right, well, that's what that was, in my opinion. And uh, anyway, um, they're very hard to fret. Have you ever had one? I've had <clears throat> I've had an acoustic 12-string, but not an electric 12-string. I think the most popular electric 12-string song is uh, Hotel California. That's an electric 12-string. For string. you, it is. For me, it is. <laughs> <laughs> we had a friend growing up, a guy named Roger Ladenberger. And Roger Ladenberger was a man of many talents. He drove around a Jaguar XKE. If you remember what those look like, they look like a, a fish. The front of them looks like a goldfish kind of opening its lips, you yeah. know. The grill did. And it was gray. It had uh, uh, it was a rag top. It had leather, uh, brown leather interior. Um, but not only that, he liked to play the guitar, and he had a guild 12-string. And somehow that guitar ended up at our house. And, uh, you know, uh, my brother used to play it, but, man, that sucker was hard to fret because, you know, you're pushing down 12 strings. Yeah. I mean, the action was pretty high on it, so you didn't have to – yeah, push it that far, but, uh, but boy, they have a beautiful sound. Though. Oh, they're unbelievable. I mean, it's just because they, they, each of the smaller six, the additional six strings are smaller, and they're they're octaves. a booger to tune. Oh yeah, yeah, it's just octaves higher. You're just tuning octaves. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it was fun, and my brother played a lot. He was good. He got real good. Um, all right, before we get into our stories. Um, Anybody that's been watching the investment markets realizes that, you know, we've had a rough um, four months. 
and uh, the Dow, the uh, S and P five hundred is off around in the twelve percent range down. Some say, "Oh, it's just getting started." Others say, "This thing's going to turn." What's also gone on has been the bond market has retreated in a major way. Now, um, it's nowhere near the kind of interest rates that we saw in the early part of my career, which was the early 1980s, late 1970s. I mean, right now we're looking at uh, a yield on the uh, 10-year treasury of uh, somewhere in the range, well, it's a 286, 2.86%. But you have to look at the magnitude of the backup and where it came from, which was, what was the low, 40 basis points? Uh, about 44 to 45 basis points. Yeah. So the yield on the 10-year treasury at one time was 0.43%. That's basically nothing. That means you're tying up money for 10 years at no yield. In Europe, they had things that were yielding a negative 0.43 basis points so that you paid them to hold your daggone money. To me, that's how you get really wealthy. <laughs> um, so the, the point is, is that, Yes, there's been a very large backup. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves, and we can get into these other stories, but are we at an inflection point in terms of the economy's ability to uh, somewhat survive, or that's not the right word, but continue to flourish with interest rates at this level and the 30-year mortgage close or near close to 5% on homes, so you're going out to buy a home, that's just on an FHA loan. So a jumbo may be closer to 55 or 6 I don't know what they're charging on the jumbo. That's if you buy a house that doesn't fall within the FHA uh, uh, ceiling. So... Uh, one could make the case that maybe rates are right now as high as they might go. They, they might bump off of 2.9 on the 10-year and not go much higher. I don't know. I'm not making a market call, but I'm making a market observation with a suggestion that you should take a very close look at it. If you're thinking about buying something in here, uh, on the fixed income side, it's still not keeping up with inflation, but then you might make the argument that inflation, we've had a spike, but it may not be sustained. So anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about, uh, you know, what's happened over the last year, one of the, I guess, major, uh, changes that we've seen is that since uh, the early part of the 1980s, you know, when inflation peaked, we've been in this uh, downward sort of uh, trajectory where inflation uh, kept getting lower and lower and subsequently, uh, or in parallel, interest rates also kept declining. So um, 
in the last year, we've started seeing much higher inflation, inflation that we haven't seen in four decades. And um, interest rates, you know, moved up rapidly. We haven't seen such a rapid move up in interest rates uh, at different uh, points of maturity. So whether you look at the two-year bond, five-year bond, 10-year bond, even the 30-year bond. So the, the question, as you asked, is, you know, have we reached some sort of an inflection point? Um, if you look at uh, how interest rates have, uh, you know, reacted to, uh, you know, periods when countries have very high debt levels, interest rates generally haven't, uh, you know, moved up. And part of the reason is that, you yeah, know... That seems like it would be just the other way around. That's sort of a counterintuitive uh, observation on your part. Yes. So the reason why, especially, uh, you know, when you look at government balance sheets, the reason why government balance sheets get bloated is because governments engage in fiscal spending when the economy is extremely weak. So last time that we saw, you know, massive fiscal uh, expenditure to the to a similar level that we've seen uh, here in the last few years. Uh, and the last time that the debt, uh, government debt as a percentage of the economy was as high as it is today was in the 1940s when World War II was going on. Uh, and the reason was that the government was spending a lot of money on the war effort. Um, and other parts of the economy uh, suffered because there was what's known as crowding out. So when the government is spending a lot of money, uh, the private sector, uh, you know, does not have the funds that it needs to engage in uh, investment and so forth and consumption. So we saw that during World War II. Um, this time around, you know, we didn't have a war. Uh, we do have uh, wars going on, but uh, the the immediate catalyst for increasing government spending was COVID. Um, and again, debt shot up. Debt was uh, below 100% uh, of GDP, and now it's way over that. So if, you know, we have reached an inflection point, then the question becomes, you know, can the economy sustain higher interest rates? The government already has a lot of debt. The government has obligations, you know, whether it be social security or other uh, transfer payments that it, it makes every year. Uh, so will the government be able to finance its uh, deficits if in interest rates were much higher? Uh, and that uh, is unlikely given how high the debt is already. So uh, my sense is that, you know, uh, interest rates could be higher than we've seen perhaps in over the last decade but there will be some sort of a ceiling where beyond a certain certain threshold they will just not be able to sustain and we'll start seeing the ramifications on the economy uh, and uh, inflationary forces will you know stop taking hold especially as consumption declines as people cannot buy homes as people cannot buy cars and then at that point we'll see uh, you know a reversal in inflation at least that's my sense. When that happens, that's hard to predict, but uh, we may be getting close, especially just given, you know, that homes have become very expensive uh, uh, or servicing the debt on homes has become expensive, as you mentioned. Yeah, right. So, 
my son lives in California or in uh, Arizona, and the reason the housing market is so strong in in Phoenix and Scottsdale and those areas is, and in Glendale even, and and uh, uh, you know Chandler and Gilbert and uh, Tempe and Mesa, all those places uh, all around Phoenix. People are selling houses and coming from California to buy with cash. Now, one would think with California people selling, who's buying? Because so many of them, you know, are, are moving. And you would think that market would crater. But it's evidently holding up well enough for people to sell there and take the cash and, and go pay cash for a house in Phoenix. Now, what's interesting, and this is just a kind of a side thing, you know that California has a, almost 200 billionaires there and and it's got some of the greatest poverty in 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 the country if not the greatest but it's also got 200 billionaires it's an incredible uh uh juxtaposition of wealth and poverty and uh it's it's unbelievable it just we're seeing things now that we've really never seen and uh back to your thing about the government <laughs> when is cash debt and debt is cash because for the government they're 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 interchangeable you know the government doesn't have any cash they spend money they say they spend money all they do is reallocate your and my money or money that they can create out of the banking system and and borrow and and sort of monetize. So whenever you own um, the money supply or the own control of the money supply, cash debt they're interchangeable. Uh, yeah, they're going to pay it back, but this whole inflation thing we're getting—they want this. They say they don't, but they do because the uh, the whole idea they're borrowing money they don't have. They'd like to be able to pay it back in cheaper dollars. How do you get cheaper dollars? Inflation doesn't have the value, you know, doesn't have the um, uh, intrinsic value that it had before the inflation kicked in. So what we're seeing is the result of fiscal policy. But here's the problem. If you can't make it really take hold, then deflation is a government's worst enemy. And because it actually increases the value of the money supply. Now, how is that possible? Well, there's a lot of money that's not getting spent. And so the money that's actually liquid, if you're looking at a company, what's the float? You know, how much stock is really in circulation and how much of it's being held back? Look at the money supply the same way. You know, what it's, there's a lot of money that's not going to get spent and never will get spent, you know, on anything. But the money that does, then you're looking at the last trade. What happened on that? And sometimes you can have deflation too. On the consumer side, I read an interesting article. It said to maintain the, the current standard of living uh, requires about $6,400 a year in debt for the average consumer. Yeah. Um, and, uh if you look at the effect of higher interest rates on the consumer, that's an immediate impact. Um, when, when you, 
when people are borrowing to maintain that standard of living, that's an immediate impact on the economy. Um, and, and so, you know, to, to your point, there comes a point when interest rates get, get to a certain level where something breaks and, it's and, break. and, and it can't, it can't sustain. I know. So, all right, you got this uh, article here. The stock market's future ain't what it used to be. Um, with stocks off more than 7% and the bond market down almost 9% this year, many investors seem to feel they have to take more risk to catch up. In fact, you should take less. This is Marty or Jason's wig. Um, who's Marty's wig? I've heard of him, but anyway, he, I think he was, he was a a trader. Yeah. Yeah. He had some fun that was out there. Did he die? No, I think he's still around. He, he, uh, wrote a famous book called uh, Pitbull, which was his book on trading. Right. Exactly. Boy, that's (laughs) on that. Uh, so what it's saying here is there have been times where you were rewarded for reckless risk. Most recently, the SPACs and the yeah. things that, that ran up and that if you didn't get out, you were stupid. And, you know, and and now many things have pulled back and it's a lot harder. Yeah. Um, it, it's the idea that in a, in a bull market, um, mistakes can be forgiven a lot easier and they're not they're not as damaged, potentially not as damaging long-term. Um, you know, you think of, uh, really, I mean, the last decade, uh, I mean, you could, you could buy something, uh, you know, buy the dip mentality. Uh, you buy something that goes down, well, you buy more because it would turn around, generally speaking. That was kind of the, the idea that risk and pain was temporary, um, where in a, uh, a bear market or a bad market, um, it, it can be permanently damaging to a portfolio. Uh, it could take a long time for something to recover. Uh, if you buy it and it goes down 70, 80%, it could take a long time for it to come back. If it does come back, uh, we saw that coming out of the tech bubble, uh, uh, in 2000. I mean, some, some large companies, uh, I mean, Intel, what was it about? 15, 20 years for Intel to get back? It's still not back. It's still actually. not back. No. Yeah. Um, so. It, and their earnings are higher than they ever it, were before. Yeah. And that's just uh, that's just because valuations got so crazy where it took, it's taken so many years for earnings to catch up. Right. And, and so when the market, I'm not saying that it, it is changing now. Maybe it is. You know, we don't know how quickly, you know, dynamics are changing. Uh, it could still be a buy the dip thing. We, we don't know that. But when you're dealing with your retirement money, you better be careful um, because yeah. you don't know. And if you're making a, a, a bet that the market's going to fix a mistake for you, um, that, that could be a, an expensive bet to make right now, uh, especially if you're getting close to retirement or in retirement. Listen, I mean – one can only operate on what one knows from the history of the way you've done things, intuition, research, all those things. And then there's still the possibility of being wrong. Yep. 
And the other, the other point he's making too is, you know, current valuations. Um, you know, if he, he uses the example of a bond, you buy a bond at par paying 3%, it goes at a, to a premium and your current yield is less than 3% because you're paying more for it. Um, that's still true somewhat for a stock, but a stock has the potential to grow their earnings. But if they don't grow their earnings or don't grow their earnings as fast as the market's anticipating, that's when you have problems. Right. I don't know. You just have to hang in and play the game because otherwise – Y'all ever heard this song? <laughs> My generation. Yeah. Um, anyways, hang with us because we're going to talk about these things some more in the second hour. And, you know. The second half. I nearly had to pull that off. <laughs> Second half of the hour, we will talk more about investing. It's a very serious business. That's why we kid around so much. We try to keep ourselves from crying. No, seriously. It's fun. You need to have some fun doing it. Stay with us. It's the Tom Dupree Show. Okay, this is uh, The Who from probably, I'm going to say, I don't know, maybe 1966 or 7. Um, and they had still a very, they were kind of like their version of the police in a, in a sense. They're very tight and spare, you know, not no synthesizers yet which we got on who's next and no 
kind of rock opera kind of thing like in Tommy. You know, it was just very tight. Little band, really. They had four people rather than three, but um, it's just it's skiffle kind of taken to the little bit the next level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I, I just, these things roll around in my head. Okay. U.S. GDP drops 1.4% as the economy shrinks for the first time since early in the month. That's actually a very big deal. If that is a trend, there is no way in hell we're going to have six interest rate hikes. Not happening. In fact, by the time they were going to come up on number three or four, they'll already be talking QE again. That's what I think. And that QE, of course, is is where they start buying every bond that moves and, uh, you know, uh, going out and, and, and monetizing uh, the debt on fake money. So, you know, I just don't see how in this environment that interest rates are going to go a whole hell of a lot higher. I just, I don't see how they can do it. Please explain to me if you have a theory that conflicts with mine, if you have one that agrees with it, just nod into the microphone because <laughs> they can see you nodding. <laughs> But uh, if not, if you think there's this other potential outcome that could be different, tell me about it. Uh, The only other potential outcome I see is if we have so much economic growth where, say, GDP starts growing at 5 or 6% all of a sudden, despite interest rates going up, then perhaps the economy can sustain why? How could that happen, though? I mean. And and yes, so and that's very <coughs> unlikely. Um, so these uh, GDP figures that we saw, you know, when you dissect them, as of now, the situation still doesn't seem that alarming. Just because the main reason why uh, the GDP shrank is well, first of all, there's also the base effect where if you go back to how low it got in you know, uh, March, well, the second quarter of 2020. And there was a rapid rise after that. So there's some sort of a slowdown was expected. But then when you further break it down, uh, one of the biggest reasons why uh, the figure uh, shrank was because net (laughs) exports were high. And all that means is that the U.S. uh, imported uh, more uh, from overseas than it exported. Uh, and that makes sense. You said, did you say animal spirits were higher? Is that what? No, net uh, exports, <laughs> net export. which is one of the components when you calculate GDP. So uh, I got to tell you something funny. <laughs> one time we were having a show, and this friend of mine, let's just call him Chip, was listening. And several days later, you had been talking about animal spirits, <laughs> which is kind of the thing that drives capitalism. And he said, uh, now, Darsh was talking about animal spirits. Does that mean he's a Hindu? (laughs) (laughs) The way he said it, it was very funny. So, 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I cut in there. That's what we need in the economy is what we call the animal spirits, the right. the thing of going out and starting something. Right. And, and why and, 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 and sometimes the best time to start something is when everything just looks lousy. And guess where they're doing stuff like that? Phoenix, Arizona. Scottsdale, Arizona. You're seeing a lot of interesting things get done. So that's just, it's not dead. It just, we don't see as much of it around here. The, the, I was just going to say, along those same lines on the, the imports, um, there was a big uh, uh, spin down, if you will, of inventories. Right. Yeah. Uh, so right. at the end of last year, there was a big pull forward of inventories, and now those inventories are being sold. Uh, so I guess that'll be interesting, the next reading, to see what's going yes, on with so inventories. The question is, is that because supply chain issues are so bad where they're not able to get it, the inventory that they need, or the opposite, where they see uh, supply chains, uh, you know, getting better, where they don't feel the need to... So GE had up. a big earnings miss, and they blamed supply chain, and right. 3M... Had an earnings miss also, and they blamed supply chain also. Right, and today Caterpillar also said that the supply chain situation is not getting better. Well, uh, I saw something on um, uh, 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 oil companies um, talking about production where they're having real problems, uh, you know, with steel, with, you know, with everything, securing the materials to drill new wells. Uh, I think they're anticipating about a a million – bringing a million barrels online but you can which percentage wise is much lower than it was back when in 2014 when they were bringing it online it was about 20 percent that they were increasing it but because of supply chain issues they're not can't it's interesting because you go look at certain countries around the world where they don't have all these legacy infrastructure systems in place therefore they don't have the legacy infrastructure problems like ports in California with unions that are, you know, doing a stranglehold. So you look in Africa where they have never had wireline phones. They're never going to have them because now they have cell phones. You know, would there be a way that you might be able to leapfrog some of these uh, legacy infrastructures that are holding everything back and, you know, do it differently. Kind of like the way Musk has done with Tesla. Um, <clears throat> they don't seem to be talking about infrastructure problems. So I, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I think even with Tesla, uh, they don't have infrastructure problems, but Musk has talked about a shortage of uh, the inputs that are needed to build cars and batteries. Uh, but I, I think there is a possibility uh, to some extent, but then I don't know how you can bypass physical infrastructure where if you need the ports, you know, to ship goods, you know, how would you bypass that? What would you use instead of ports now? Perhaps, you know, you could use drones or something, uh, but I don't know if you're still there uh, where you just don't need ports, but you there's a new mode of transportation that comes about just like the cell phone replaced landlines but uh i, I don't know if you you look at <coughs> bringing production back um you know deglobalization you know bringing production back domestically um 
there's there's a significant cost to that uh, you know, time. I mean, if if the infrastructure is outdated, updating that infrastructure, getting workers, getting workers trained to do whatever um, task it is, whatever good they're making, um, and so. Uh, I understand, you know, bringing stuff back, having it produced closer. You know, that was the whole idea of, you know, just-in-time manufacturing. It was more efficient, uh, but when you have supply chain issues, that, that's when the whole just-in-time goes out the window. Um, so I understand the challenge of that, but to bring it back, you have to have the infrastructure, the workers, you know, everything has to be there. Um, and I, I don't know what the if, – if there is a quick fix or even if that is a, you know – a workable solution. I don't know. Cause I mean, you're going to have costs that go up with that too. Right. So one idea would be sourcing more things locally. If they could be produced that way to where it was closer to the factory or the, or even producing some of the parts internally and, uh, you know, trying to avoid, uh, getting outside or get avoid the supply chain if it were possible what's interesting is that you know just a few years ago they were talking about how sophisticated the supply chain was in terms of efficiency you know getting things right where they need to be right when they need to be what got what got messed up in that because something did a car nowadays is a computer. It's as reliant on chips as Intel is. You know, uh, a car is nothing but a computer. And uh, I, I would say that uh, a self-driving car is similar to a 3D printer. It just is always taking a print of the landscape. So we know that it does that. But the problem is, there's even though the supply chain had gotten very efficient it's also fragile right and there's mm -hmm. places in it where it can break now how do you make something that's fragile become uh nimble or uh, malleable you know that that's the the thing that you have to deal with is that you know where are the parts of it that can be made not as fragile yeah, and that's uh, that's a difficult question, and I'm I'm sure you know that's a question that uh, a lot of companies are asking and are trying to figure out if there's a better way to do this. Uh, a big part of the reason why supply chains uh, developed the way they did, or you know, turned out the way they did, is because over the last three four decades, there's been tremendous labor arbitrage in certain countries. So you know, right. If you can produce the same uh, product in Mexico or in China at a much lower cost because labor is cheaper, then it makes sense for companies to produce it there. Now, s some of that labor arbitrage has gone away. Uh, so does that mean that you know some of that production can come back and be done locally? Then the second question is, you know, if companies start saying that, okay, we are not going to produce in China, we are going to produce locally instead, then does, say, China retaliate and say, okay, don't produce here, but then you won't have the same access to our markets. 
uh, that you've had so far. Um, so these these are all very difficult questions, and and you know, production is one side of it, but then the con- consumption is the other side. So both have to you know match, and and that's what's uh, you know complicated. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there there's no easy solution to it, <clears throat> and um, I mean that, that's what a lot of these companies are grappling with right now. You know, um, I mean, you, you look at the the shipping industry, um, you know, all the 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 issues that they've had there because that's again a very fragile uh, business uh, because those containers are designed to be dropped off at a certain spot where they're you know picked up, filled up, moved someplace right. else. You know, it's, it's, it's very specific. And when those containers are dropped off at a different location, then it, it throws the whole, the whole thing in, in flux. And you had that happen during COVID, uh, you know, the, the stuff being shipped was not being produced. What was being shipped, the containers were being left someplace else. And now they've got a, I mean, there were so many, really every fragile piece of the supply chain was impacted during the shutdown, and that's what they're trying to work out. And how do you how you detangle that kind of a mess? It takes time, um, but companies are incredibly resilient. And you, you think of the brain power, uh, you know, the experience, uh, the the dollars. Um, that's going into figuring out this problem, um, companies can figure it out. Um, and, and it will be more efficient um, once it's figured out. Once they, right. once they get everything ironed out, it'll be, the, it'll be more efficient than it was and more durable. You know, uh, just let me pipe, pipe in real quick. This is Missy Clifton. Um, I came out of the building industry in one, you know, one position prior, and it was interesting. I still read a whole lot of the building magazines, and the state of play, um, you know, was for the majority of, of that industry to move their entire supply chain footprint so that they were not resilient on European parts for hardware, fixtures, cabinetry, you name it. Um, and th- that's been going on for the last year and a half very aggressively. You mean to bring it back to where they weren't having to buy from Europe? Right. Closer, to cu- closer to customers, closer to their American customers. So yeah. domestic made, if you will. Yeah, and, and with with some things that would be, I, I guess it depends because there are some goods that when you produce it locally, costs go up. Is it a good that they, that can be passed on to the consumers, that the consumer is willing to pay that higher amount for. There's some things you can't get elsewhere or from here, like yeah. pepper, bananas, uh, you know, uh, lemons. Uh, those things are not producible locally. Seafood. We don't have seafood in the Kentucky River. Um, so there's, there's things that are always going to be exported. You can't produce coffee here, you know, the, or cigars. And, and so there are things that, you know, will require to be sourced from a distance, a car, today's automobile. Uh, this will take a minute. The, the automobile of today is, uh, in a sense, it's a dumpster fire because it's the, 
mixture of years and years of environmental uh, slash eco freak regulations built into the car. It does all kinds of stuff except be efficient. These cars turn themselves off at a stoplight. Then you push down and it turns itself back on. Well, you know what my dad used to tell me? Don't turn your car on and off because it costs more gasoline to start it back up again. But no, we do this to satisfy what the eco freaks want us to do. So uh, if you could deconstruct today's car and go back to a regular engine that didn't have you open the hood and you don't have all this junk and then the engine somewhere way down the hill in there. In other words, you had room in there to actually get to the engine like the old ones used to be. You know how the old cars were. Yeah. It was just an engine down in there. It wasn't all this crap. And then, you know, like a, a, a lot of people would love to have a straight shift. I'd love to have a car that just has four on the floor. I don't want like, you know, having to push that little thing if I want to downshift go down the mountain, you know, which I do, but that's all computer driven. It's not mechanical. I want a mechanical freaking car. I got to go buy something that's 70 years old or 50 years old. You know, these things, it shouldn't be this hard. It's been made hard. I'm done. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. I mean, you know, ultimately I, I think, we know there's enough evidence that trade is good, trade between countries. Uh, you know, when R David Ricardo came up with the theory of comparative advantage, as you said, that there are certain goods and even services that it just makes sense to produce in places where it's the most efficient. So, uh, ultimately, trade should not become the casualty of, you know, solving supply chain issues. The solution has to be one that, you know, solves this issue, makes, you know, um, uh, does not really cause these uh, 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 blocks, you know, like we saw during COVID. But at the same time, you know, countries still keep trading uh, with each other and we don't become extremely protectionist because that we know is, is bad. Doesn't help anything. No. Protectionism is really not a good idea. So, all right, so... I like that, Adars. Trade should not become the casualty of supply chain issues. I had to write that one down. Yeah, I mean, anybody know what this is? Who this is? I love dating you. I know the song. I know the song. I love dating you. I know it from Oasis doing it, but I know it wasn't Oasis doing that. It wasn't Oasis. Come on. He's going to stall singing. Yeah. Chad has to come to the door and tell him. <laughs> Super Tramp, Roger Hodgson, or Hodgson, to the uh, Smiling Gecko Foundation. All right. Now you've had your lesson today, class. The Tom DeBree Show. News Radio 630 WAP.